0: So, Lord God, uh, whom have I but you? That's verse 25 of our psalm this morning. I pray that you would help us to see it in truth, to see you in truth. I pray that you would help us to preach, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73, verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You might remember that Jacob was not very pure in heart, anything but pure in heart. He was envious of the birthright of the firstborn, until the God-man, the firstborn of all creation, showed up and wrestled him all night and then blessed him. And he named Jacob Israel. Truly God is good to Israel. That's a weird kind of good. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envious. So close your eyes. Just close your eyes, take a deep breath, and ask yourself, who do I envy? If you're like me, you might have a list. Who do I envy? I'm guessing they have something that you think you should have. Could be a car, could be a house, a promotion, an honor, a husband, a wife, a family, a life. It's not something that you simply hope to have. It's something that you think you should have and don't have. You can hope to have a baby like your neighbor, But if you envy your neighbor, you'll wish that she didn't have a baby. And you'll end up hating your neighbor and her baby and her God, who should have given you the baby. I wish that our society ran on hope. But I'm afraid that we usually run on envy. Just got this amazing triple points all restaurants triple points how did gary figure that one out i don't even get double points is gary smarter than me he's definitely not more handsome or maybe he is triple points are pretty sexy (laughs) i hate you gary (laughs) credit card envy (laughs) and then they'll try to sell you a new card that's better than than jerry's but even if you get the new card you'll still hate Jerry. That's the problem with envy. The end game is outer darkness in which you find yourself all alone and hating everyone that's, that's anyone. Envy is a zero-sum game. That means that in order to win, someone else must, to, must lose. And, and to win it all means that uh, someone else, everyone else must lose it all, which means that you end up all alone, which isn't winning it all, but losing it all. Envy will make you cut off your nose to spite your face. Envy will make you steal the good, which is evil. Envy will make you take the life, which is death. Envy was how the snake tempted humanity in the beginning. Take the good so you can be good, like God. Take the life of the good from the tree. We took the life, everything died, and now we know evil. That was evil. We took the life of Jesus in a garden on a tree, which we usually call the cross. Scripture tells us that uh, we took it, that they took it, when I think they is us, because of envy. And that was evil. Now you know. To compete... Is to envy to compete at football is fun because it's a game but to compete at life is to no longer live to hope for the life is to choose the good but to envy the life is to no longer no longer live to hope for the good is salvation in this hope we are saved to envy the good is to crucify the Christ and watch everything die. Envy assumes that there's only so much good to go around, and envy assumes that the good is a commodity, something that an individual can take and then, and then own. Envy assumes that there is only so much life to go around, and envy assumes that the life is a commodity. In other words your life is your own envy assumes that there's a limited amount of credit i think the bible would call that glory honor or praise and and envy assumes that there is such a thing as credit that people can earn credit is to deserve something to merit something or earn something we all want credit and so we very easily take Credit, which is arrogance. Arrogance is praising ourselves rather than God. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant. That word arrogant is a reflexive form of the Hebrew verb for praise, halal, where we get hallelujah, but a reflexive form. So the arrogant are those who praise themselves, who give themselves credit. And when I think of it that way, I realize that I am envious and arrogant, for I'm always wanting to give myself credit and jealous of those that get more credit than me. I, I live in a society that tells me that's good, that that's ambition, Peter, that's the name of the game. And sometimes it even teaches me that that's life the survival of the fittest competition. I'm envious and therefore arrogant and therefore profoundly deceived because I'm a pastor <laughs> <laughs> that means that I would like praise for my ability to praise that means I'd like credit for how well I preach about how all credit belongs to God like credit for that I'm proud of my humility and you see that's just stupid that's stupid it's stupid and wicked Verse two, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Okay, I'm probably not jealous of the fat and sleek. But if I was in poverty 3,000 years ago, I probably would be, right? Oh, if only I was fat and sleek. Whatever. Uh, Verse five, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. This is interesting, that word in Hebrew isn't really man, it's the word Adam in in the singular. It gets translated out because it doesn't make sense to us, but the the psalmist is talking as if we're all part of one man named Adam. Isn't that weird? Uh, The arrogant don't hurt with the rest of Adam. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people; Therefore, God's people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Some people look at Donald Trump, for instance, and all his money. And they say, well, he, he must be doing something right. Just look at all his money. Some people. Other people look at Michael Bloomberg. And now they say, well, just look at all his money. Even more money than that other guy. He must really be doing something right. You know, there was a time when Jesus turned water to wine. He multiplied fish and loaves. was followed by great crowds and people looked at him and said, wow, just look at all that wealth, power, and fame. He must be doing something right. They thought they loved him. But I suspect that it was not faith, hope, or love. I bet it was envy. 15 years ago, I felt like I was winning the envy game. Folks were actually leaving other churches to come to My church. Several times I remember people coming up to me and saying, Well, Peter, uh, you must be doing something right. I mean, everybody loves you. The church is growing like crazy. Just look at this huge new building. You must be doing something right. I loved that. And yet it made me nervous. On Good Friday... Do you suppose that people looked at Jesus and said, "Wow, well, Jesus, you must be doing something, right? I suspect that everybody uh, looked at Jesus, the world looked at Jesus and thought, no, he's doing absolutely everything wrong. But lo and behold, what he did that day is the very definition of the right. That's Good Friday for a reason. It was a revelation of the good and the gift of life given on a tree in a garden. Verse 10, his people, God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them, those that take credit. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's asking, what gain is there in being godly? What's the good of being good? I mean, should I just be good for nothing? Just good? For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked, convicted, corrected every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I'll speak this way. I'll think and speak this way. I'll jump into the envy game. I would have betrayed the generation of your children, Lord. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Does understanding God's will and the envy in your own heart ever seem to you like a wearisome task? I mean, you keep asking, what's wrong with me? I can't lose weight, and so I want all my friends to get fat. I rejoice at wrong, and I do it in the name of love. And how come I'm not one of the sleek and fat or or whatever, or whatever it happens to be at the moment? Perhaps you've been asking, how do I hope and yet not envy? Hope is a confusing thing, you know. How do I hope and not envy? I'm like a field of envy and hope, and I can't separate one from another. I'm like a field of weeds and wheat, and I can't judge between the two. If they tell me don't envy or else, I'll just envy those that don't envy. If I tell myself, envy is evil, Peter, so don't envy, I envy those that don't envy, and then I wish that the whole world was consumed with envy so I wouldn't be alone in my envy, but to envy is be alone, and when I envy, then I wish everyone to hell, including me. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. What was it about the sanctuary of God that healed this guy of, of envy? In our last message, why I go to church from Psalm 84, we spent a bunch of time talking about the sanctuary. We said that by the sanctuary, the psalmist is probably referring in some way to what we loosely mean by, by church. So, So you might think, well, dang, Peter, church doesn't free me of envy. It only makes it worse. Well, maybe that's because no one is really entering in. Not all the way into the inner sanctuary, to the seventh day, to God's rest. He says, I went into the sanctuary of God. Last time we preached that entering the sanctuary was like entering a story. When you enter a story, the story enters you and transforms you. You lose yourself and then you find yourself in the story because the story has found a place in you. When you get to the end of the story, when it's finished, when you get to the end of the story, what do you learn? The plot. And then the plot changes the meaning of every event in the story. So anyway, people weren't to enter the temple in order to comprehend, so much as they were to enter the temple in order to be comprehended. They didn't go in, in other words, to gain the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, the knowledge of good and evil was contained in a coffin under the mercy seat behind a curtain. The covenant of law was literally kept within the covenant of grace in the inner sanctuary and was the presence of eternity, the God's seventh day. They didn't enter to take knowledge of the good in order to make judgments. They entered to be judged and that judgment made them good. That judgment cut away the evil and destroyed it with fire. And that judgment purified the good and offered it as fire. They didn't enter to gain knowledge, but to be known. And then they knew, like a living knowledge. Now the psalmist couldn't understand this, especially at that time. He couldn't understand, but he was understood, he was known, he was judged, and when he left the temple, envy just seems stupid, just seems stupid. It wasn't that he learned he shouldn't envy. So if that's what you think this sermon is about, I mean, you already knew that, right? You, should, you heard that somewhere. You, you've already taken the fruit from the tree, you shouldn't envy. It wasn't that he learned he shouldn't envy, it was as if he woke up from a nightmare. An evil dream called envy, a nightmare, a shadow, a lie, and a, an illusion that kept him in bondage to death. Envy, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Jesus said, I am the end. I'd take that quite literally. Literally. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one wakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Literally, when you rouse yourself, you despise their phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked and cut and hard, I was brutish and ignorant. Literally, I was stupid and nothing. I was a phantom. I was stupid and nothing. I was like a beast toward you. In the New Testament, you know this because you spend all that time in the Revelation, the beast is the Antichrist, which means imitation Christ. Imitation Christ. The beast lives by a false narrative, which is competition, the survival of the fittest. It doesn't explain life. It explains the limitations of life. That's called death. It's a false narrative. Seems to be true, but turns out to be a lie. The beast believes that it is its own salvation, what I call Mises. Me is Salvation, but man, Adam, is destined to believe God is salvation. Not Mises, but Jesus. The name literally means God is salvation. Mises is a phantom, a shadow, the product of a lie, and Jesus is the very foundation of all reality. Well, the psalmist entered the sanctuary, and he realized, number one, when you envy the arrogant, you envy evil which is nothing. When you realize that you envy nothing, you no longer envy. The arrogant take credit for themselves, and when I envy, I take credit for myself, but, but the arrogant didn't create themselves. And I didn't create myself, and if you say, well, we create ourselves with our choices, I'd remind you that you make choices with the chooser, and you didn't choose your own chooser. You didn't create your own chooser, your your own will, your goodwill. Your ego tells you that you did, but that's a logical absurdity, unless you are the uncreated creator. A logical absurdity and an illusion, and that illusion is your ego. If you yourself create anything, it is a nothing, an absurdity, and a phantom, a false self. That false self is the source of all your sin. For it is the thing that keeps you in bondage to envy. In the temple, the the sin offering would bear envy to destruction in the fire, the fire that came from God's mouth, the fire that is His word, And it turns out we all must be baptized with that fire. If you don't die now, you will die later. I mean, have you noticed this? But every human success story ends in failure. We will all die, and so we will all have to surrender the illusion that is our ego. And so now you may say, okay, great, good point, I got that. So, Peter, um, I won't envy evil, but I'm afraid that sometimes I envy the good. And that's true. In fact, to envy the evil is to envy a bit of stolen and corrupted good, and if you don't envy the evil, well, the only thing that's left to envy is the, the good. Number two, when you envy the good... You envy God, for God alone is good. When you envy the good in your neighbor, you envy God in your neighbor. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to to change. The good in your neighbor is not to their credit. It's solely to God's credit. And, And when you see that, you'll stop envying your neighbor and you'll start thanking God for your neighbor. In fact, you can worship God in the temple that is your neighbor. In the stone temple in Jerusalem, they brought sacrifices of praise. To praise God is to sacrifice your own ego and offer the gift of thanksgiving. That thanksgiving was pictured in the burnt offering and many of the other offerings, some of which turned into a shared feast, a feast of Thanksgiving, which worshipers experienced as ecstatic joy. Think of it, a communion of ecstatic joy in the sanctuary of the covenant that we will discover is a covenant of marriage. Number three, when you envy, you envy God who is the opposite of envy. God is is love. Envy is taking the good, and taking the life. Love is giving your life, and that's the good. When you entered the temple, you entered a story, the story. To get to the end of the story and the meaning of all things, you had to make sacrifice. And the sacrifice is yourself, your false self in, in the form of confession, and, and your true self as as praise. You had to pass through fire and flaming swords, which turned every which way, and enter behind a drawn curtain, and look between the two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant containing the law written on stone. In the Psalmist day, none but the high priest could do this, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, so few, if any, could see what was standing on the throne in the Psalmist day. At the heart of the temple, Between the two cherubim was the plot, the meaning of all things, and the judgment of God. If you could see him truly, you would see something like this. This is the good in flesh and the life hanging on a tree. When you envy, you envy this. This is what you envy. Now, you may say, well, who the hell would would envy this? Everyone. This is love. First John 4, 10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the halasmos, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Love is freely choosing to give your life to a- another. This is love. And in a world of lies, love hurts. But in the sacrament of the covenant, love is a communion of never-ending ecstatic joy called life. Eternal life. When you envy, this is what you envy. You envy this, the lamb on the throne. When you envy, you envy this. For all credit, glory, praise, and honor goes to this, which is him. This is God's credit card. This is how God pays for all of creation. So when you take credit for your own creation, you're taking credit from this tree. Feel bad? check this out. You didn't make him do this. As we said, no one takes my life from me. You didn't make him do this. Doing this is how he makes you. He, He didn't do this because he had to. He did this because he wants to. This is who he is. This is his heart. Jesus from the bosom of the Father hanging on a tree. This is love, and God is love, and he wants to love. All the time. Well, when you envy, you envy this. And this is also this. This is at the beginning of the story. And you've said the revelation, this is at the end of the story and it is the way from the beginning to the end. It's the movement, it's the plot. In the beginning, there were two trees that looked like one tree in one spot, or there was one tree that functioned as two. Jesus is the good in flesh, and Jesus is the life. To take knowledge of him, to justify myself, is death. But to be known by him is my justification, and life. This is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil is taking from the tree. The good is life given on the tree. To come to this tree in envy is is death. To come to this tree in hope is life. The tree stands at the beginning of your time and at the end of your time. The tree is the boundary between time and eternity. So God said something like this in the beginning. Don't envy this tree. Don't take credit from this tree. But we all take credit from the tree. And with it, we construct an ego. We take credit from the tree, but God gives grace on the tree. And when we receive that grace, our ego dies and we begin to live. Eternally live. We lose our lives and find them at the tree. We lose our lives and find them in the story of grace, which is the word of God. We hope in God, and in this hope, we're saved, writes Paul. I'm saying that when we envy, we crucify the Christ. And when Christ forgives us his life, God creates faith, hope, and love in us. And now I know you may be asking, you may have been asking, uh, if that's how God creates us, it creates a good will in us, if that's how God creates us, well, then, Peter, did God want us to eat from this tree? Do you understand that's the exact same question as, did God want us to crucify the Christ? Because he did say, you will not murder, right? Right? Same question as did Christ want us to take his body broken and blood shed. Uh, Same question as did God want the slaughtered lamb to take his place on the throne at the edge of time and eternity and on the throne in the very depths of my heart and, and your heart. I don't think we can fully understand the answer to that question. And yet the answer will understand us, will comprehend us when we enter the sanctuary and hear the story of grace, the gospel. Now, I know that you couldn't follow all of that. Nobody with a brain stuck in space and time can follow all of that. But I was just pointing out okay, this is the point envy is stupid. Envy is stupid. Envy is stupid because when we envy, number one, we envy evil, which is nothing. Or number two, we envy the good, which is God. And number three, we envy God. When we envy God, we envy the opposite of envy, for God is love. And we envy God. When we envy God, we envy God, and God has already given himself to us. The night before we took his life on the tree, he gave his life at dinner. And it turns out that he's been giving his life since the foundation of the world. He's the word with which God creates and sustains all things. He's the good, and he is the life, forgiven long before we could even attempt to take. That's what Scripture says, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We can only envy what we've already been given. we see that, envy just reveals it to be just like profoundly stupid. 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 Listen to our psalm. Verse 22. I was stupid and nothing. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you hear that? God is my portion so the psalmist is painting a picture here like mom and dad you know order pizza they're dividing up the pizza among the kids and each kid gets a portion that's what it means you get a portion of the pie or maybe a judge reading a will and each kid gets a portion of the father's possessions all of his goods and and his life one portion is a car maybe another portion is a house and your portion is god yeah that was correct answer your portion is god your portion is God, and God is the good, and his word is life. And you think, well, okay, you're just speaking figuratively, because how can each of his kids get the same portion? Because God is not a limited commodity. And he gives himself without measure. God is spirit. He gives his spirit without measure. So, so if, if you don't have... It's because you haven't yet learned to receive. And you cannot receive if you believe the lie that you have to take or earn. In other words, you can't hope in God if you envy God. So you just need to wake up and see it. Envy is stupid, it's stupid. In Romans, Paul writes, God has given us his son. Will he not also graciously with him give us all things? In 1 Corinthians, Paul's getting all frustrated with the Corinthians, you know, because they're fighting with each other, they're envying each other, they're saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to this church, I belong to that church, I have the gift of this, and you have the gift of that, and Paul just, like, interjects this statement. Stop it! Stop boasting! Now I quote, all things are yours. The world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You know, I love that song we sang at the oratory. I asked Vince to sing it. Whom have I but you? But we sing it in a minor key. And for like 30 years, I've been singing it to myself when I'm feeling sorry for myself and I'm envying other people. Poor me. All I have is God. My portion is God. That's stupid. I have God, and with him all things. My portion is God, and God is the good, and his word is the life. The spirit is life, and the life is in the blood. And hey, come to think of it, you know, entering the temple was all about blood, wasn't it? What was it about the blood that healed the psalmist of envy? In one of his books, Dr. Paul Brand tells of how he avoided medical school for years because he he hated the sight of shed blood. But then one night, in an emergency, he helped administer a blood transfusion to a young woman who had bled out in an accident. In detail, he, he describes how her apparent corpse filled with beauty came to life, and spoke. And then he writes this. The memory of shed blood kept me out of medicine. The power of shared blood ultimately brought me to it. You know, blood is an absolutely amazing thing. It literally carries the breath of life, the spirit of life, the, the oxygen, as well as the nutrients to every cell in your body and it carries away all your metabolic waste. It even cleanses you, uh, it cleanses your body of pathogens and disease. It cleanses you of evil and constantly delivers the good. We think God is into bloodshed when we read the Old Testament. We think God is into bloodshed as if he really just doesn't care about blood, but maybe he's into blood shared. And it's his life that's in the blood. As we preached last time, God commanded every Jew who ate meat. This is the meaning of sacrifice. Every Jew who ate meat was to bring the blood to the tabernacle. For he said, all the blood belonged to him. Leviticus, he says this, I have given it to you to make atonement for your souls. When we envy, we take the life of the good and we hold it in our souls. And when we worship in hope, we return the life as a sacrifice of praise. Sin is a blood clot. And grace is a river of life, and the life is in the blood. You understand, get the picture? In the temple, in the inner sanctuary, is the heart of God. (laughs) from the bosom of the Father, says John. He's the judgment of God, which is the decision to bleed, which is the desire to share his life with you and all creation, he's God's will. In the sanctuary is the heart of God, the temple is his body, and now you have become his body. And in the fullness of time, all creation will have become his temple. This corpse of a world will be filled with the glory of God, and you will get to see it happen. So you understand? Envy is stupid. (laughs) Number one because we envy nothing. Number two, we envy God. Number three, God is the opposite of envy. Number four, God has already given himself to us. And number five, everyone that's anyone is one body. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul just goes off on the Corinthians about this. He's getting, every youth pastor loves to preach on uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, because it's all funny. It reveals how stupid we all are, if in fact we are one body. My hand doesn't envy my face because it has a nose. So I don't cut off my nose to spite my face. One member of my body does not envy the next member of my body. Every member of my body realizes that's stupid. Each member, nobody member of my body members the other, envies the other parts of my body, but each member of my body hopes, each member of my body hopes in all the other members of my body. In fact, it's all the differences in the members of my body that make me a body and not a bag of slime, like a slime mold, all made of one-celled organisms. Envy wants to make everyone just the same in fear of differences. Faith, hope, and love unite every difference in one body, and that's what makes every member of the body happy. Do you know what I used to envy? And now I, I'm just being honest, okay? But this is what I used to envy. Breasts. In, in junior high and, and even before, I remember thinking, I wish I had breasts. Not man boobs, but female breasts. Because they were, like, beautiful. I thought, well, if I had those, I'd just, like, look at them all day. But then I thought, you know, maybe I wouldn't appreciate them if I had them. May 28, 1983, I got breasts. Because I celebrated communion in the sacrament of the covenant of marriage, and two persons became one body, one flesh, and I remember thinking, wow! What a great way to get breasts! (laughs) Glad I didn't take the pills or whatever they do. You know, I, oh this is great! Sorry. I also mean this, because this is true too. Do you know what else I also used to envy? The gift of words of knowledge. I mean, it is the most amazing prophetic gift if you've ever seen it work. I mean, there's a lot of fake, but if you've ever seen the real thing, it's amazing. And I beg God that I would get it, and I did not. But one day Susan turned to me and she said, Peter, I just heard God say, and then she quoted this entire Bible verse that I knew she had never read. And then it started to happen all the time. I was tempted to envy, and then I remember I thought, wait, this is like the brass. <laughs> <laughs> wow, God, what a great way to give me the gift of words of knowledge. And, and now I ask her to pray for me like all the time. You know, I've envied Carl Wheeler's preaching. I've envied Andrew Trewick's evangelism skills. I've envied Nick Birch's managerial skills. He, he was on the board. What am I saying? That those guys are boobs or breasts? <laughs> no, not really, uh, but they are my body. And you see, when I begin to look at them that way, their differences are no longer a threat. Right? But every one of their differences suddenly becomes a blessing. And what do I do if they don't share that blessing? Do I cut them off and cast them in the trash? No, not any more than I would cut off my own finger and throw it away. I don't curse them. I remind them of the gospel. That on the night he was betrayed by all of us. He took the bread and he broke it saying, This is my body given to you. I want you to remember this. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the covenant. And they knew and were beginning to realize it's a marriage covenant. This is the covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. He gives you all things. And yet for a time, it seems like all you have is just like a little bit of bread dipped in some juice. It seems like all you have is a a baby in a food trough. Seems like all you have is a naked, beaten corpse of a man hanging on a tree. So why does God arrange things to at least seem this way for a time? What I mean by that, why does he make us all different and then place us in what appears to be a world of limited commodities and competitive situations? Is it so that we would learn to compete? Is it so that we would learn to take Or could it be so that we would learn to give? Is it so that we would learn to abuse and rape? Because that's what it is. Or could it be that he wants us to learn to commit and love sacrificially? Is it so that we would learn to envy? Or learn to hope in a new creation? Is it so that we would only know evil? Or that we would learn to choose the good in freedom you see maybe we're all different and all uniquely needy so that we would learn to love love so we'd learn to love love it turns out that there's actually no shortage of love the great banquet is love god is love julian of Norwich said his blood is the most plentiful thing in all the universe there's no shortage of love but for a time there is a shortage of people with an appetite for love there's a shortage of people that want to love and here is the great secret that we're only beginning to see there is no greater delight than love I don't know of anybody that actually fully believes this, but Jesus said, it's better, it's more delightful, it's more wonderful to give than receive. And that would mean that the giving is the greatest receiving. I only experienced that in one or two places in my life. But he said, that's true of all reality. There is no greater delight than love, and God is love. Love is not a commodity. Maybe for a time and a moment, he made himself a commodity, to trick us into swallowing him. <laughs> but love is not a commodity. Love is a limitless and eternal communion. So aren't you just sick of envy? I mean, have you become sick of envy? It just, it sucks. Are you sick of envy and don't you want to find somebody to love? For now, could you just love a little bit of Jesus? Tear off a piece of the bread? Dip it in the cup. Don't envy him. Hope in him. And then place him in the manger. Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. They're both faith, hope, and love. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's finish the psalm, verse 26. God is the strength of my heart. Did you get that? He is my will to bleed from my neighbor. He is my desire to love. If you want to find somebody to love, if you find yourself in that situation where it's like the garden is dead and your mind is full of red and you want somebody to love, that's Jesus taking his place on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, literally be lost, and they are lost. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the presence of faith, hope, and love. But for me, it is good, this is the good, to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In other words, I want to preach good news. I want somebody to love. I love love. If you love love, envy will appear to be just what it is. Stupid. And now this is really good news, but at the start I asked you to think about someone you envied for something. You see, it will be revealed to you that you are either envying nothing or you are envying the something that is, is God. So, so, so whatever it is, um, whether it's like a weird sexual thing or, or, or maybe something that you feel really guilty about. You see, when you surrender it to the judgment of God, it reveals what is nothingness in it. And you think, I don't want that. And it purifies what is good and you realize, well, God is in the process of giving me that. So if you don't experience the thing you envy right now, it's because God is creating hope in you. And why is he creating hope in you? Because hope is the capacity to enjoy something. He's preparing you to enjoy the great banquet forever and ever and ever. We love because he first loved us, that's the gospel. We come to the sanctuary to enter that story. And so you see, skipping church, what God means by church, really does make you stupid. That's the title of the sermon. So believe the gospel. And don't be stupid. You have nothing to envy but God. And he's already given himself to you. Merry Christmas.